This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by Character Matters, a new book from Aaron Minikoff. In helping others become more like Jesus, pastors can neglect caring for their own souls. Your heart matters. Your character matters. Character Matters is available at moodypublishers.com. Last week, a video was leaked of two men pursuing a Maud Arbery in a neighborhood in Brunswick, Georgia. In the video, a truck blocks Arbery from running. After Arbery tries to change direction to avoid the truck, he and one of the men, Travis McMichael, begin fighting. Three shots are fired and Arbery falls to the ground, dead. While Arbery's death occurred in February, the father-son pair who were in this car were only arrested last week following a massive public uproar after this tape was released. For many, this was not just a tragic death or even a murder. As Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms put it, it's 2020 and this was a lynching of an African-American man. Lynching for some may feel like a word from the late 19th or early 20th century, but discussion of the nature of lynchings has become increasingly mainstreamed, especially after the opening of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Birmingham, Alabama. The monument opened in 2018 and honors the memory of all the recorded lynchings in the United States. We wanted to learn more about the past and present of lynchings and where this violence and Christian history intersect. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I am Ted Olson, editorial director at Christianity Today as well. All right, Ted pretty heavy episode to get into today, but I do think it is an important one to do a gut check on and see how you're feeling about all of this. Yeah, uh, it was, uh, yeah, the boy, the gut check is, you know, pit of your stomach sickness, uh, I guess was, was the, the gut check. I actually avoided watching the video. One of the advantages of being editorial director is knowing and, and having the privilege of, of, of being able to read about things without having to be the frontline journalistic mode of having to actually dive deep into some of these things. Asking about my initial response, uh, it was pretty much reading social media outrage over the first few days, you know, including some uh, some great pieces that we published, Lisa McCauley's piece in the New York Times, some other, some other great pieces, including one written by our, our guest today. Yeah, I just, you know, is that curiosity about, there's a curiosity about where, where, where is this conversation going to go next? Because, you know, we've talked about this in the past. Social media outrage only goes so far, and it seems to burn out quickly. And I don't know if it is actually, you know, there's it, there's a frustration I think in seeing social media outrage about the, you know, rightful rightful outrage I think righteous indignation. But there is that frustration with being like, here's another case that is just horrific, and I don't know if the response to these things is affecting much cultural or legal change. I, I don't I don't know. I mean. We did see the arrest later on, as you mentioned. I guess that was encouraging in its way. But there is there is that a little bit, and maybe it's just you know also with it's hard it's hard to I, I don't know coronavirus is is sucking a lot of hope or just you know kind of like a, a natural mm-hmm. hope response. Uh, there's just a kind of a ennui in the air, and so when some of these things happens, it's easy for me to respond like 
yeah, I don't know. I, you know, how long you know, the response for me is the gut check is kind of like, how, how long, oh Lord, how long more than I hope this is the catalyst for change. To be honest about my gut, that was the response. Trying trying to have more hope these days, but the mode we're in makes it hard, makes it hard to kind of be glass half full on things. I'm mean, optimism and hope are different, but I'm I'm saying the gut the the innate gut res, response. It's hard it's hard to hard to lean into that that positive response. My gut check also comes from another place. I think that you would feel despair in that, as I mentioned when I was giving us a summary of what we're talking about today, you know, there's a (laughs) several month gap between when Arbery was killed and when the public outrage starts to come and the fact that this tape was released. And so as it's become very clear, there's been multiple layers of horrificness in terms of the actual crime itself and then the amount of justifying and rationalization and potentially cover up and excuses and essentially systemic injustice being played out on a very large scale. I think that kind of like adds another layer of despair towards the entire situation, as awful as it is, and feeling like, okay, at least in other situations with Black Lives Matter, it would feel like they would be able to get to this point of arrest or a grand jury indictment, and then things would start to kind of fizzle after that. It felt like the criminal justice system was not able to really adjudicate justice in a lot of situations. I, I am kind of curious about how that will all figure out. Who is our guest, though, today to kind of talk to us about some of these things at a much deeper level? Guest today is Malcolm Foley, and he was the author of one of these pieces that I was saying that I read and really appreciated reading. He wrote it for MereOrthodoxy.com. Malcolm is a PhD candidate in Baylor's Department of Religion, studying the history of Christianity. He's actually the university's first ever graduate student regent. His dissertation looks at the African-American Christian responses to lynching from the late 19th century to the early 20th century. He did his BA in religious studies, but also had a second major in finance, a minor in classics. Uh, This is at the Washington University in St. Louis. Then he went over to Yale Divinity School and got a Master of Divinity looking at the theology of the early and medieval church. So I'm eager to hear a little bit about the shift to modern Christianity. He is also currently the Director of Discipleship at Mosaic Waco, which is a PCA, a Presbyterian Church in America, church plant in Waco, Texas. So, Malcolm, we are thrilled to have you on, on Quick to Listen. Thanks for coming. I'm glad to be here. Malcolm, it is great to have you here. I think maybe one of the best ways for us to start this conversation is potentially by you know giving historical background and talking about terms. And so when we're talking about lynching, how do you define that? And where does that term come from? It's a fraught, it's a fraught term. Historians and anti-lynching activists have fought for this definition for a while. So the definition that I'll give is, is one that Manfred Berg gives in his book, Popular Justice, where he says that lynching is essentially an, an extra legal punishment that's meted out by a group of people claiming to represent the will of a, of a larger community and with an expectation of impunity. There are debates over what constitutes a group. There are debates over what what kind of denotes the will of, of the larger community, but that's that's kind of a, a good place to start. The term itself for American history originates around the period of the of the American Revolution. There are a few kind of circulating stories about the origin of the term. There's a story about a farmer whose name whose last name was Lynch, who gave a poacher three hundred lashes. There are a few there are a few other stories, but 
probably the most convincing one is of the Bedford County, Virginia militia. They, they were essentially lynching, lynching Tories in the, in the American Revolution. And the leader of this militia was Charles Lynch. And he referred to his kind of track, tracking down lawbreakers outside of the law, called that lynching. Evidence to suggest that that kind of stuck. Lynching didn't always, it didn't always include death. It was often things like flogging, tarring and feathering, exiling. But it, but in the late 19th and early 20th century, and I'll, I'll talk about this in, probably in a little bit, it becomes an almost exclusively racial practice. But the, but the category of, of, of kind of extra legal punishment is what we're thinking of when, when we think of lynching broadly. I mean, which is interesting, right? Because if we think of it in that early revolutionary era, some of the more radical you know, revolutionary guys who have been lifted up as heroes were doing the, this kind of tar and feathering and killing, very much responsible for these extrajudicial kill, killings. There's an aspect in which early American heroes, lynching is part of not just something that's part of uh, America's shame, but is, has been to some degree lionized in our American history, even even before it becomes heavily racialized. There's kind of this this heroism. One thing when I was at the museum, the museum draws a very clear line between some of the racialized lynching as it was done in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and what we would consider kind of frontier justice types of things, the posse, the the gang, you know, some of these things. Help me understand that distinction a little bit more. And so I'll talk about kind of what what happens in the in the late 19th and, and early 20th century you have in a number of kind of american populations you have you have very weak kind of weak law enforcement agencies and so for some lynching is avenue that that communities take for this slice of this frontier justice idea so specifically in the in the late 1880s up until that point you have you have white and black and black people being being lynched by mobs during the period of reconstruction you start to you start to see those numbers go up as as specifically white Southerners who are sympathetic with freed people and white Northerners who are coming down to to educate the recently freed and and do other things like that. They're killed by by groups like the like the Ku Klux Klan, other other paramilitary groups. But in the late 1880s, during a period of what can be called redemption, the number of white people being lynched drops, and the number of black people. People being being lynched skyrockets to the point that the uh, that the proportion is you have upwards of seventy percent of the of the people being lynched are black. That's what Carlos Hill calls the race the racialization of lynching. It's at that it's at that time that narratives start circulating about black men being sexualized beasts for white communities to protect their communities, specifically to protect their women. The black beast rapist needs to be removed violently and publicly in many communities that have. They they have law enforcement. It's just that mobs think that that law enforcement doesn't act quickly enough. The the frontier justice thesis it doesn't stand up as much specifically when you when you start looking at the racialization of lynching post eighteen eighty six because you have places that have like like I said they have they have robust justice systems still be extremely biased against against the black man or woman but the idea is is mostly that that it that it won't act quickly enough and it won't act with the kind of decisiveness that that the mob would that's then the way that lynching functions in in those societies. I'm I'm curious about how the religious aspect comes in to play in that concept of we've already talked we've talked about the relationship between the kind of the mob and the kind of local law enforcement doing some some background reading in preparation for this and I've also been doing some other background reading before this there was this story from 1885 in Oxford Mississippi of the lynching of of Harris Tunstall 
In this story, there's a mob, there's a report that a, a woman has been attacked. They, you know, have kind of this show trial near the courthouse, but then everything moves from the courthouse lawn to this Methodist Episcopal Church. And this is on a on a Sunday morning, like, you know, either, I don't know if it's right after services, before services, during services, but it is on a, a Sunday at a church. And the Memphis Commercial Appeal covered this lynching. So I'm going to read a quick quote from that newspaper article. It says, the mob, quote, seemed to appreciate the fact that it was horrible work for the Sabbath day, and that they were sending a spirit illy prepared before his God and realized that human life is sacred and a human soul divine. Yet they knew that they had duties to perform and paramount to all others was the thought that they must protect their women. I'm cu- uh, several things are you know deeply deeply troubling about that, but I am curious about as lynching became racialized. To what degree do people see? Do they see God in this? There's I've seen a lot of different reports and a lot of different kind of conclusions from different historians about the role religion played in the view of the lynch mob in, in you know on, on the part of the lynch mob. But what's what's your take on that? I would be reticent to. As much as I and, and as my history suggests, I love I love theologizing. I would be reticent to over theologize this, though. I think that for some, this is the way that it also worked in in pro slavery rhetoric. Christianity functions for some as a very powerful tool for people to get what they want, especially in a society where Christianity had has a particular a particular social and, and political cachet. There were some who sought to sought to mobilize it to that end. And so when your fundamental commitment is, as was said, to, quote, protect your women to perform these duties, functionally, that took that took precedent over the recognition of a human of a human life, because the levels of torture and, and, and brutality present in, in specifically a number of these spectacle lynchings suggests something else. Or while you may say that you hold human life to be precious. It's also very clear that you hold some that you hold some lives to be more precious, more precious than others. When it comes to the way that people would use would use their faith to justify these particular practices, it's it's also helpful to remember that while they're saying that, you also have black pastors who are commenting on this and saying, if you can either stand in a mob in a mob of thousands of people and watch a black man be set on fire alive. Or if you are one of the people holding holding the rifles that then riddle this body with bullets, you're most likely not a Christian. So, so was the claim from a number of from a number of black pastors. And so while there are some, there are even some some historians now that that ask the question: How could these people who claim to be Christian lynch all those kinds of things? For a number of contemporary black pastors, that wasn't a question. They're just like, well, if you're going to do these things, you're probably not a Christian. I can find other things to spend my time doing rather than trying to justify how you can be a Christian in some way and engage in these things. I've got a congregation I need to I need to care for and people whose lives I need to I need to I need to build up because because you're living in a society where you're faced with consistent and constant trauma. One of the you know historians I've read actually probably a couple of historians I've read have kind of thrown out this idea between black pastors and black Americans framing a lot of these lynchings as uh, similar to the to the crucifixion I mean obviously there, that has a long history with James Cone victims as as a kind of martyr in some degree and juxtaposing that with this idea that the lynchers especially the lynch mom or the defenders of lynching even if they were you know passive participants representing the violence as kind of a God-ordained 
retribution, kind of like this is these lynchings are kind of the judgment of God for these kind of, you know, supposed, you know, black men's transgressions they're imagined or whatever. And that the mob is kind of the instrument of, of God's judgment. Is that accurate? Is that, is that, I mean, was that idea prevalent or is that isolated where you would find quotes like that? Yeah, no, that's it's it's definitely it's definitely there, and it functions it functions in the background. It's what it's one of these things that it adds confidence to these to these claims, similar to James Henley Thornwell's sermon on the rights and duties of masters, where he talks of where he essentially gives a well laid out pro slavery pro slavery argument, and fundamentally at the root of it is biblical hermeneutic that God in Christ is his purpose is to is to uphold a particular social social order. And so when he looks around, when when Thornwell looked around at slavery and when he looked at the scriptures, he looked in the scriptures and saw that Jesus in his parables uses masters and servants as examples. He sees that dynamic present in Southern society. And so he's like, clearly, Jesus doesn't have any problem with this. It, it's rooted in this understanding that what that one of the things that God does is he just he's he essentially blesses, blesses particular social orders. And that then helps you confidently say well, slavery ought to ought to continue. Similarly, when it comes to when it comes to issues of lynching, if I can find resources that suggest to me that I can be that I can be a tool of God's of God's judgment, that makes me all the more confident to to do so. Even if it means, as I said, the, the kind of brutalities that 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 took place in the in the era of spectacle lynching. So I really like your research, Malcolm, and its focus on just trying to hear from how African-American Christians were reacting and responding and making sense of all of this. And I would love to know how much resonance did their arguments have? Were they able to prick the conscience of the people that they were trying to get their attention? Or did a lot of the folks that they were trying to influence end up just kind of insulating themselves you know, in the same way that we talk about people being in a news or editorial bubble today, was that was that true back then too? I see kind of the work I'm doing as a prequel to Mary Beth Matthews' text, Doctrine and Race. He talks about African American evangelicals and fundamentalists between the between the wars, late 19 teens and 1940s. And one of the things that she outlines is the fact that you have a period of time where a number of African American evangelicals agree with fundamentalists, particularly on the core of the gospel and all these kinds of things, but for a number of African American evangelicals, there is a direct link then from there to fighting for racial justice. And they talk to these fundamentalists about it, and they're like, mm, "If you're focused on all this race stuff, chances are you're not as orthodox as you say that you are." And that essentially stops a lot of the conversation. Similarly, in the years prior, so I'm I'm focusing on like 18, 1890 roughly to to 1919 period of time before the NAACP gets really gets really involved in anti lynching work. And one of the things that I continue to find is that you have as as much as as much of an opportunity as black pastors have, they're they're trumpeting the idea, hey, lynching is happening. We all we this is this is something we need to we need to deal with, specifically calling for white pastors to partner with them. And one of the things that you also see as a response is them lamenting, specifically the white pulpit and press silent. That's an that's an indictment that that continues throughout that time. It seems like the closer the lynchings are to the congregation, to the pastor, to the you know denominational body, the less likely they are. It's like the, the more distant you are, the more likely you are to have spoken out. Is is what the the history seems to seems to indicate there. What I wanted to ask you about was 
that eventually it does seem like something breaks through. So there's this book I mentioned earlier, Lynchings and Spectacle by Amy Louise Wood. And she's got this line in there. She says, you know, quote, it was not until the national mood began to shift against lynching in the 1910s and 1920s that ministers became more outspoken against lynching. By 1930, most church papers and official organizing bodies, such as the Southern Baptist Convention, had taken public stances against lynching. Even so, most ministers, especially in communities in which lynchings had just taken place, were reluctant to denounce lynching publicly. What changed? What changes between, say, the 1890s or 1900s and then that kind of period in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s that church bodies and congregations and and pastors are, are willing to say, oh, yes, we need to address this, and yes, we need federal legislation to address this? Public sentiment changes. So it, it's important to consider this in a similar way that we consider even the modern civil rights movement, in the sense that I don't see either of those as kind of profound moral revolutions. What happens is, specifically in the case of lynching, when the international community community gets gets wind of it, you have papers in in the UK and in France, in Japan, talking about talking about Southern lynching, when that's the kind of attention that Southern communities are getting, and especially in a period of industrialization ramping up and things like that, it becomes very much bad for business. And there are, and there are a few historians who, who then extend this argument. In many ways, that practice moves into the criminal justice system. No longer are people, are, are people being killed by mobs in front of thousands of people. You just move that into capital punishment. And that's a, and that's a piece that's a piece of what goes on. But but a lot of it is basically the rest of the nation is no longer going to let you get away with gathering to burn a human per, to burn a human being alive. And so you find other ways to fulfill that same same goal. In that period, you start seeing the rise of Jim, of Jim Crow legislation, other of other tactics to still keep black communities, quote, in their place, unquote. That's a piece of what goes on while that particular practice of spectacle lynching begins begins to fade, find other ways to fulfill that same purpose. So help me out, because I'm not sure I completely understand this yet, because it does seem like you do have some northern opposition to lynchings in the period before this. What does the kind of increased globalized economy bring to the table that a few decades earlier northern opposition would not have brought to the table. I mean part of it is that northern that northern opposition is more sporadic in the early than it is later because some people think that this is just like this is just a short-lived thing like people like they'll figure it out they'll get they'll get over this soon they'll get uh, over uh-huh. this now when it keeps going on for decades and statistically when you look at the numbers the 1890s are the worst decade and it just starts to drop over time, there are, there are economic reasons for that dealt with in Tolne and Beck's Festival of Violence. For the experience of particularly African-American folks on the ground, they're not thinking about the aggregate statistics. They're thinking about the fact that like this could happen to me at any at any time. And the terror of that continues to be affecting even, even when statistically these things drop off. But they drop off because not only is it the case that once more and more people find out about this because of because of journalism's development and and the fact that these these stories are making it all around the country and all around the world. Added to that, you have the Great Migration, where millions of Black people are then leaving the South, not just for economic opportunity in the North, but also fleeing domestic terrorism. All of these are part of the matrix of reasons why we see drop of lynching. 
Ida B. Wells, when she when when she does her international campaign in in England, one of one of her rationales is Americans see the British as super civilized. If they say something, if the if the British say say something about lynching, maybe 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 America. <laughs> That's that's something that she's doing in the 1890s. Like she's she's at the forefront of all of this, and she's I mean she is essentially the point the point of origin for critical work on on, on lynching and racism and the and the religious aspects as well. I mean she's got that great line about how American Christians are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hell. That's that's a that's a big part of her work. Malcolm, I want to go back to something that you had said a couple minutes ago about how the African American church and white fundamentalist church that many times agreed on a lot of theological points, but had a lot of disparity in their views when it came to civil rights. And you had suggested that many of the white fundamentalist churches kind of took that approach or saw the approach that African-Americans had towards civil rights, hinted that it was because they maybe saw it as being liberal. Can you unpack that a little bit more and exactly some of the ways that they ended up critiquing them those claims of people being people being liberal, it, it goes back a while. Carolyn Renee Dupont's book, Mississippi Praying on the on the Civil Rights Movement and Southern Evangelicals, particularly in Mississippi, goes into this in fair amount of detail. It, it goes back to the fundamentalist modernist controversy because basically the association is if you're concerned with all of these with all of these social all these social movements and stuff like that, you're essentially an adherent of the social gospel. And we know those 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 social gospelers that deny the divinity of Christ and all these other kinds of things. And, and so because of that, that's something that a number of fundamentalists sought to sought to distance themselves from. While on the other side, you have a number of black Christians who are like, this whole fundamentalist modernist thing is a debate that's going on in your white churches. We're not debating that. We're we're on the same page about the authority of scripture and all these things. We're we just also want to live. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're being we're being murdered on a on a daily basis. And we think that you ought to be on the same page as us in, in thinking that ought not be the case. But for many, they they were unable to get past the idea that that it's perhaps the case that believing these things about who Jesus is and what he's commanded us to do might suggest a strongly anti anti lynching stance. That's a history, like, like I said, that goes that goes back to the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, and specifically the social the social gospel movement. So the way that you see it then is that the social gospel movement happens and that white fundamental Christians are reacting towards that? Or do you see it more as an unwillingness to change and perhaps wrapping it under this sense of like, we're actually against the social gospel movement? Mm-hmm. I think it's a mixture. I think it's a mixture of the two. I think in all these things, there's a, a matrix of reasons why black Christian voices are essentially ignored. I think both of those those things account for a lot of that. I am I am trying to unravel some of that question about how much this controversy is playing in, especially in the kind of early 1900s, so you know 20s, as the as that controversy is especially pointed. One of the people who's writing in at that time is is Walter White, who is this anti-lynching activist and NAACP leader. And while you know the main thing that we read about regarding kind of local pastors and lynching is this this idea of, of silence and complicity and kind of not saying, you know, the, the problem with pastors is that they're not saying anything. But so, but White kind of sees this darker connection. I want to read a section from something he wrote in 1929 and get your get your feedback on this. Here's, here's the quote. Uh, it is exceedingly doubtful if lynching could possibly exist 
under any religion other than Christianity. It is no accident that in these states with the greatest number of lynchings, the great majority of the church members are Protestants and of the evangelical wing of Protestantism as well. It is a well-known fact that revivals and camp meetings often produce an increase in hospital cases of mental disease. No person who is familiar with the Bible-beating, acrobatic, fanatical preachers of hellfire in the South and who has seen the orgies of emotion created by them can doubt for a moment that dangerous passions are released which contribute to the emotional instability and play a part in lynching. End of the quote. I read that, and part of me is like, ah, that just sounds like anti-evangelical bigotry and part of this kind of modernist fundamentalist fight of the 20th. But at the same time, I'm very, I also know that Walter White, he did some serious, deep research into what was going on with lynchings, including he was light-skinned. He was able, he was able to go undercover into the KKK, into a number of places where people were planning lynchings as a as a black leader he had these unique insights to what was going on so i don't want to dismiss his insights there even though it sounds like kind of elmer gantryish nonsense from your perspective how much of this should we dismiss as anti-evangelical bigotry and how much should we actually see a direct connection between revivalism as such and racial violence that's that's my favorite Walter White quote to use when I have presentations on this particular on this particular topic because there are there are others who share who share that assumption Arthur Raper who writes the tragedy of lynching one of these first kind of sociological book length accounts of of lynching makes makes very makes very similar makes very similar claims and and it can be difficult to extricate to extricate those two like I said that you you this is one of those things where I see more more coincidence than a causative relationship between the two. When it comes to racial violence, I mean, revivalism is is one of the, I mean, one of the few reasons you see specifically an, an, ex, an explosion of the Black Christian population in the Second second Great Awakening, particularly. There's nothing kind of explicit explicit in that that, lin, that, that links it to, lynch, to lynching. There is a sense in which some will seek, that a number of, anti, of anti-lynching folks will bring up is that these lynching orgies are a just kind of emotionalism writ large that these are these people that have just gone temporarily crazy and all this all this kind of stuff those kinds of explanations i don't i i, I don't think that that covers a lot of a lot of what's going on there it's not just it's not just frenzy it's more it's more sinister than that it's rooted in this understanding of you needing to i mean it's rooted in idolatry is what it is it's rooted in your need to defend and in the case of lynching, it's whiteness and white supremacy in, in, in general. And so people like Atticus Haygood, who I, who I referred to in the article, uh, he's a bishop in the Methodist Episcopal Church style. When he justifies specifically the burning alive of Henry Smith, his primary reason is he was burned alive because like the people just the people just went crazy. They thought about they thought about the crime that he was accused of and they just kind of collectively lost their minds. And, uh, and as a result, they did this thing, in a sense, takes away the culpability of all those of all those involved. Haygood said this himself. He's like, you know, if this had happened to somebody I knew, I could I could have been a part of the mob, too. And what that does is that take, takes away the culpability of each and every one who, per, who participated in that in that killing. As much as it may appear to, to folks like White and others that this is just a result of, of emotional frenzy and things and things like that, in a sense, that cheapens the kind of insidiousness of this of this particular practice. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel... Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Right. I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Malcolm, you have also mentioned a number of times that white women play a really critical role in this. And Ted had alluded to the fact that he and I went to Brian Stevenson's memorial, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, last year, which tries to honor the people that were murdered by lynchings. And in particular, it gives very stark one-sentence liners about kind of why, quote-unquote, this person was lynched. And I just wanted to read a couple to give people some context. So here's one. Stephen Sasser was lynched in 1884 in early county Georgia for living with a white woman. Arthur Jordan was lynched in Warrenton, Virginia in 1880 for eloping with a white woman. Warren Powell, 14, was lynched in East Point, Georgia in 1889 for frightening a white girl. William Brooks was lynched in Palestine, Arkansas in 1894 for asking to marry his white employer's daughter. There's other quote-unquote reasons that are listed on here that don't have to do this, but I did photograph a lot of the ones that just seemed particularly astounding as an impetus for someone losing their life. Malcolm, can you just unpack what about white womanhood is really central to understand when we're trying to understand lynching. Yes, that's the that that is the that is the central question when it comes to when it comes to lynching in the late in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. It's a result of what I what I like to call the cult of Southern white womanhood. And Ida B. Wells recognized this and fought against this in, in all of her work, that there are these profound racial and gendered narratives that undergird gird lynching. There's the narrative of the of the black man as a sexualized beast. There's the there's the narrative of the of the white woman as the non-sexual paragon of virtue. And there's the image of the white man as the kind of violent protector of white female virtue. And and these narratives, I mean, are rooted in, I mean, Victorian understandings of gender and sexuality, but they're upheld by by a number of 
Christian narratives. And so in many Southern communities, any kind of sexual relationship between a black man and a white woman just called rape like that. There is there's there's no conception of there being a possibility of a consensual relationship between a black man and, and a white woman. When Ida B. Wells says, I believe this is in Southern Horrors, uh, no one believes the, the, the threadbare lie that black men rape rape white women in these in these alarming numbers. She gets threatened with lynching as a result of saying of saying that. Because there, in the in the social imaginary, there is no place for for that kind of relationship ever being consensual. And so, when she writes a bunch of editorials after that, like she just she keeps naming specific cases where you have a relationship between these two. Once it's discovered, often the woman will say, "Oh, he raped me," essentially, essentially to protect her own to protect her own social status. And then he's killed. And that happens, that happens over and over and over again. When people justify the practice of lynching, particularly in the late 19th and, and, and early 20th century, they, they say, we only do it because of this crime of rape. One of the things that Ida B. Wells emphasizes is that that is demonstrably false. And one of the reasons why it takes so long for these narratives to kind of to get traction is because that's the line that Southern apologists continue to repeat over and over again only because of rape. It's only because of rape. And when people hear that, their first impulse is, oh, that makes sense. It makes sense that you would respond in that in that way. This was Ida B. Wells's own position and Frederick Douglass and others up until the 1890s when some of Wells's friends are lynched in Memphis. And she finds out that it that sexual assault had nothing to do with it. And then and then she started looking into these other cases and finding, wait a minute, this narrative about this only happening because of sexual assault is demonstrably false. People need to know this. And so that's what she spends a lot of her editorial campaign doing is attempting to dispel these these myths that have so much they have so much social power to the extent that they keep people from resisting lynching in any significant way. Because there was always a justification is what you're saying. And a justification that was very visceral and had a lot of shock value to it. I know you your your focus is a, is on history and historians don't love to do some of the contemporary parallels here. Oh, I'll do it. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> well, let's talk about how the continued extrajudicial kind of violence against African Americans, as we as we've seen in this this case that we're talking about, you know, precipitated this conversation today, as anxiety about quote unquote women's virtue or what what have you has lessened. We've seen some of the conversations more recently be about things like standing your ground. In this case, it was, oh, you know, maybe he was skulking around a building site or, you know, quote unquote, there were a, you know, there were burglaries in the area. I'm wondering as some of explicit language about lynchings and whether they're justified or not has kind of dropped off how some of the still the actions of this definition that we started with about about lynchings being extrajudicial violence for the sake of you have to remind me what you said exactly but i remember that there was a there was some sort of um, larger greater good that was used as justification if you know women's virtue or 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 women's purity was by far and away the number one thing that drove lynchings a century ago is there something or is it more generalized now that as we're seeing modern things that we could lump under lynchings, is there a you know women's virtue of, of today that is kind of driving a lot of this violence? So I would say that it's generalized now as it was then, because what because what women's virtue was was a sen- it's in a sense that in itself is also a smokescreen. 
for keeping for essentially keeping keeping black communities in their place. And so essentially for you to transgress women's virtue in the in the late 19th and early 20th century or for you to be perceived as doing such is for you to break the unwritten racial rules, for you to transgress your place and to do so in a way that is that is that is unforgivable. In, insofar as lynching is the most violent and public instantiation of white supremacy in American history, it is so because that's its purpose. It's a, its purpose was essentially to terrorize communities into into remembering, hey, you're in the second class. What what we what we say goes. When we think about today, and we think about as you said, kind of what the what the women's virtue is today. Fundamentally, it comes down to the fact that while the practice of lynching faded, the narratives that undergird people's willingness to believe in this idea of black criminality, those narratives didn't change. There's still the assumption if you're a black man running in a neighborhood, in just if you're a black man running in a neighborhood, that it's there are some people who are going to think it is more likely for you to be a criminal than if I see a white man or a white woman running. Part of it is because these these narratives of black criminality are so there's something that we that we imbibe so constantly that it affects our like it affects our unconscious judgments. And because of that, it, it often leads to death. It's an infuriating reality. It's a lamentable and it's a lamentable reality. It's not it was never really about never really about women's virtue. That was one of that was one of the reasons. That was one of the reasons given. But even that, it seems when you look at it, it's a it's a tool, essentially. That's that's kind of the broad overview. Malcolm, I'm really interested in the theological impact that lynchings end up having and how they shape both black church theology and white church theology. What do we know about that? Lynching is an opportunity specifically for black churches to develop an understanding of basically to ask the question, what does the church, what does the church do? There's the assumption we've got to do something. And the question is, okay, with the resources that we have, what do we do? I mean, you have a range of responses. You have a range of responses from some Pentecostal and holiness folks saying, if you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, then you don't need to fear the lyncher. All the way to Presbyterians like Francis Grimke, who will get to the point where, where, where he'll say in a sermon responding to the Atlanta race riots in 1906, the only way to stop a mob is to shoot it to death. And you have people in the pulpit saying things in between in between those two things. But fundamentally, they come from a place of of recognizing human dignity and thinking through, OK, what's on the what's on the table for me, for me to protect my brothers, my brothers and sisters. For a number of white churches, the toolkit remained largely in looking at the resources of the Constitution and other and, and other things like that. So the so the critique of lynching rarely moved beyond lynching as anarchy and we need to kind of reinforce the rule of law and things like and things like that. That's the most common anti-lynching rhetoric that you that you hear coming out of coming out of white churches. At least historically, there's people who were less willing to think through it in theological terms. It just I, I mean there may be a sense in which it just cut too it just cut too deep. But for a number of black Christians that was never it was never an option to to not marshal those resources against against lynching. We can have a whole other conversation about the ways in which that term rule of law has been mm-hmm. <laughs> weaponized in various ways over time. Yeah. Or, a four or, yeah. hour quick to listen. Yeah. <laughs> I can come back. Not quick, a long <laughs> listen. That's what we'll have to call them. <laughs> Malcolm, I just want to wrap our conversation. I was watching a 
video of you and you had said in it that you really want white Christians when reading texts from the black church and reading about the black church to view its story as family history. I'm wondering if you can share how you imagine that happening and also what that has meant for you as an African-American to also view the white church as your own family history. Yeah. Um, well, you know, especially as, as someone who is deeply reformed and as, and as someone seeking ordination in the PCA, somebody who believes that the Westminster confession and, and standards are, are a faithful understanding of, of scripture. Here's the answer that I would, that I would say to what it means to view particularly, I, I mean, I mean the history of the black church as, as family history. It means that we have to expand the resources that we that we use both theologically and in terms of biblical interpretation. So we got to expand the commentaries that we read. We got to consider the range of Black and Latino Latina biblical interpretation, as well as those of other racialized minorities. It, it, re- it requires us to remind ourselves that that we are not only neighbors but also brothers and sisters in Christ, and are, and are worthy of, of being treated as such. It means that it means that when your brother or sister suffers, it means that you've got to feel that suffering. It means you've got to sit with them. That you that you don't feel like you have to speak because chances are we're going to say the wrong thing. The fact of the matter is, is that is that this is an opportunity for us to sit and learn from one another's experiences, to wrestle with how to apply the truth of the scriptures in in not only our individual lives but in the spheres in which the Lord has placed us. It means that the suffering of Christians around the world is our suffering, and it means that we've got to feel it and we and we're called to resist it. It extends beyond just loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It extends to all of our neighbors, that is, every other human being. Alongside our evangelism, we also seek to alleviate one another's suffering. That's that's what's commanded in the in the Sixth Commandment, that we don't murder. But the 135th question of the Westminster Larger Catechism says that, that the duties of that Sixth Commandment are to resist all thoughts and purposes, subdue all passions, and avoid all occasions, temptations, and practices that tend toward the unjust taking away the life of any. If that is the case, then we have to set ourselves against against anything that anything that tends toward unjust death. And in the case of the way that racism has functioned in American society, it seems unquestionable to me that it is one of those things that tends toward death. And so as as Christians, we link arms with other Christians in that same in that same fight. Because one of the things that's frustrating about particularly this history is that a number of black Christians have felt like you have had to fight this battle alone because people have found excuses to not to not link hands with, with with one another, and so and so it's my hope and my and my prayer that that happens before before the Lord returns. Yes, let's definitely pray for that. Thank you so much, Malcolm, for this really excellent and in depth discussion. Yeah, it was really just great to hear all the history that you had for us today. For people who have feedback, we invite you to send us an email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com, podcast with an S. We are also on CT Podcasts on Twitter. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted, it always falls to you, but I think you always rise to the challenge. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, I always also... Uh, say almost the same thing every week these days because apart from the you know nice warming sun it's just become Ted's weekly board game report because you know these are the things that are giving me joy this week uh, I in fact it is still going on I'm in the middle of a great family game of the game Scythe, which is probably the best board game on the market right now it uh, takes place in an alternate World War One 
landscape and you just move all over the board doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Sounds and great. It's, just, it's fun. Uh, you know, my son and I love to play it all the time. We've bought all the, we've upgraded all the components and we play it a bunch and it's harder to get my wife and daughter to play, but we've got a, a nice family version of the game going now. And it's how great. Much, how long will it last? Well, in theory, it's supposed to last an hour and a half as a game, but we're going on night number three of playing it in 45 minute increments. So, you know, it can take a while but it's great. We love it. And then in the meantime, I got to say the thing that's bringing me joy right now, I hate to be like, this This is very not me, but coronavirus brings out weird times. Guys, grocery games that, you know, I, I've not ever watched the food network. I'm not one for watching reality TV and I definitely don't watch competition shows. That's what we're doing right now. And we're just wiped out at the end of a day. I'm like, let's just watch guys, Guy Fieri's guys, grocery games. Yeah, and why running is it around a supermarket. So much joy. What is the what is the secret recipe that it has? I just think you know, like all these cooking shows, it's people who are good at what they do. <laughs> and I'll tell you, we were trying to figure that out. I'm like, what do I enjoy so much about this? Other than just you know, like it doesn't have all the cutthroat, backstabby, you know, ridiculousness of most reality TV shows. It's just, you know, it's like an old style game show in, in, in some ways. But I think maybe, Morgan, I think maybe I just miss going to the grocery store. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't been in two and a half months. My wife, my wife goes every two weeks. I have a heart thing, so I'm trying to have extra quarantine. Yeah, I just kind of, I'm like, yeah, grocery stores, having a game show in a grocery store. It's kind of a nice little comfort food right now. That's my joy. I'm uh, on Twitter at Ted Olson. Morgan, what is bringing you joy right now? thing that most recently brought me joy is the podcast Hooked on Pop. Oh, and yeah. I don't listen to it that much, but one of the best things about this podcast is that it dignifies pop music, and I love pop music a lot. And there is a Dua Lipa song, and some people are probably like, what? Who is Dua Lipa? What is a Dua Lipa? Dua Lipa is an artist who came out with a song called Don't Start Now, and it was actually released, I think, at the end of 2019 slash beginning of 2020, but I've just been listening to her album like nonstop the past three days, and was trying to just learn a little bit more about some of the disco motifs that she includes in her song. And this podcast in particular just like breaks down basically every type of like musical Easter egg that you would want. And so I think there's probably like 12 to 15 disco music Easter eggs in Dua Lipa's song, Don't Start Now, which is not too bad for a song that is three minutes and three seconds. You know, it gave me a musical lesson about what disco is about and some of the ways that they put songs together. It was very enjoyable and it made the song so much richer and cool and not just feel like a gimmicky pop song at all. Nice. Is that the main kind of music podcast that you listen to? No, I honestly don't even listen to it that much. I don't know why, but I wanted to give it a shout out because that episode was so good. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So if you want to listen to a different podcast, it's called Hooked on Pop and you can follow me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Malcolm, throwing it to you. So what brings me joy right now? So my wife and I are about to have our first, about to have our first child. Um, wow. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on there, but it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a constant, it's a constant joy for me to even just to, just to feel her belly and feel my, feel my little Aww. daughter just kicking it, just kicking around. And that's one of my favorite parts of the, of the, of the day. That brings me a lot of joy. I joke. She calms down like when I tell her to calm to calm down. If my, if, if, if <laughs> and so it's my hope that she will continue to be that obedient outside of the womb. <laughs> 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 Unlikely. 
right? <laughs> what people keep saying. So I can still pray for a miracle. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but and you have that option. So when when is the actual due date? Uh, we do late late July. Wonderful. Yay. And people can follow me on Twitter at at Malcolm B Foley. M A L C O L M B F O L E Y. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. If you want to help support the show, there's two ways that you can do that. You can either go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. And I said, or do both of them. And you can subscribe to Christianity Today magazine at orderct.com slash podcast. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boonie Ashola, and the music is done by Sweeps. You're available wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.